Coffee Carmen Connection is about being human. It's about you choosing to prioritize your well-being, putting the time in to strengthen your resilience to adversity, and being part of a community that holds you accountable and offers support when the going gets tough. Our podcasts bring expert insight and real-life experiences together for you to enjoy and learn what it is that makes us human and how to work with it. Good morning, Stuart. Thank you so much for joining me this morning on Coffee Calm Connection. We've had several conversations before, and I'm really excited to to have this one. I think it's going to be great. For the people listening, do you just want to give a bit of a background about who you are and why you're here? Yeah, I'm Stuart Thompson. I um, run an organization called The Still Method, which stands for Stop, Talk, Imagine, Listen, Learn. And we initially primarily worked with children, but we do with adults now as well who are experiencing anxiety, our approach to working with anxiety is about understanding that it's not about just fixing one thing, it's about changing everything so we can drive forwards. I've been working in mental health for longer than I want to admit because it makes me feel really old. <laughs> I, um, I started out as a social worker more than 20 years ago, but I've been in private practice for about 20, 20 years now in private practice. That's incredible. And I think, I think we're very aligned in terms of, of, of our belief and you've got all of the, the knowledge to, to back it up and I'm bandwagging on, uh, on that. So I'm really grateful to learn from you. What I'd really like to talk about today, I think is something that we both believe very uh, much in and actually is the fundamental premise of Coffee, Calm and Connection. And that is about ownership and the ownership that we all need to have over our own mental and actually overall health. So I wonder if we can sort of have a conversation around that. Tell me what your thoughts on it are. I think it's one of the things I've struggled with over the last 10 years. We've seen a a pandemic of anxiety and mental health problems. And I'm asked constantly why I think that is and, and I could take up your whole podcast coming up with theories. But I think that one of the the difficult things about that is that while we've seen that rise in, in mental health problems, we've also seen a rise in the need for people to have immediate solutions and looking for the one magic button they can press to get well. So it's something that I see in the work that I do with children that when I talk to schools or parents or organisations, they have hundreds of tools, but they're like a scattergun and not knowing what to do. So I'm going to try a bit of meditation today. I'm going to press this point on my temple that helped me relax. But there isn't a kind of responsibility of actually saying, actually, if something's wrong, maybe I've got to change some of the tough stuff as well. And I know it's really tough to change some of the tough stuff. But actually, if we're really going to get well, we've got to do the whole kit and caboodle. We can't just do the fun bits are the bits that are accessible in the first instance we actually have to look at everything we're doing and have some of those tough conversations about what's what's going wrong and I think that can, can be quite tough sometimes I think so too and I think and I'm as guilty of it as as anybody I put a new routine in place and after a two weeks if I'm lucky it falls off and I wonder why there's no lasting change and then I go back again to wonder why can't I make it more than two weeks? What is it that I'm doing wrong that means these changes that I so desperately want to implement 
I can't seem to do for longer than two weeks or a week or sometimes even three days. And one of my core beliefs, I suppose you'd call it, is that a lot of the changes I'm trying to make are at the superficial level. And I've got to understand much, much deeper down what those drivers are that are or what those habitual processes that might be subconscious are that are, you know, causing the the roll on effect. I think as well, it's about sometimes looking at the things that are going to have the biggest impact straight away. Sometimes I talk to parents and I talk about the desire to be a waitrose mum over the desire to be a farm foods mum is actually what's getting in the way of their success. So they want to they want to make sure that dinner's cooked on time and that everyone has all these great meals, but everything else is falling apart around them, but they're being so tough with sticking to these rigid guidelines that they've set themselves or these aspirations of success that actually if we just change some of the lower level stuff, that would have a bigger impact. And we see it a lot with mental health where people decide to take on a whole new diet or fitness regime, but it actually it's out of character for them. It doesn't fit with who they are, so they're destined to fail before they set off. And actually, it would be better if we could introduce some small, low-level interventions that had a bigger impact. But I think that desire to be the person we want to be can be the thing that scuppers us. One of the things that I read recently which resonated with me, and I think is saying what you're saying, is about... It was on a weight loss thing that I was following and it, it gave you a person, meet, I think her name was Julie or something, meet Julie. Julie started to lose weight and then got to her plateau and didn't understand why. We did a bit of work. We found the magic solution. But actually, I say it a, a bit uh, blasé, but the magic solution was absolutely something that resonated with me because it is what I think of as a sort of a, a foundational habit. And it was recognizing there was a problem with that foundational habit. And they called it the weekend problem. So uh, Julie, or in fact me, so the reason it resonated is because I do this. I can stick to my, my, I've got quite a good structure during the week that works for me. But the weekend it falls apart. And it falls apart because I'm obviously now out of routine and different stuff happens. And one of the things that I then do is I don't plan my eating very well, which means I'm reactive. So it gets to two o'clock and I think I haven't eaten. I'm going to grab a sandwich and that muffin looks quite good as well. Whereas what this sort of was a light bulb moment for me was, and I don't mean to make this all about eating, but it just you know shows the point, was actually the very small incremental thing is just give it a thought on Friday evening, tomorrow, what's the day? And make sure I've planned breakfast and lunch for me. Just make sure I've factored it into the day. And that is a very easy thing to do. It's not something that requires me to do massive amounts, but it will help me. What do you think of that? I think you can push that even further, though. And it's something that we call, when, when we work with parents, the, what I call the stuff it principle. So everything goes really well Monday to Friday. The weekend goes wrong and Monday comes along and we think, well, that's it. I ruined it at the weekend. I might as well stop now. But wouldn't you be kinder to yourself if you just said, do you know what? I went a bit crazy at the weekend, but it's Monday again. I'm going to get back on it. But it's the guilt that you carry from the weekend that prevents you from being successful for the rest of the week. So for me, it's about being a bit kinder to yourself and, I think in mental health and um, in well-being generally, we've fallen into this this trap of sort of fundamentalism of 
you've got to strive as hard as you possibly can to be successful and people that aren't successful fail where actually we're much better to just say you know i'm really rubbish at that thing but i'm all right on a monday so i'm going to celebrate the fact that i eat brilliantly during the week and i'm a bit wild on a weekend but actually that's that's five out of seven and if i was cleverer i could tell you what percentage that was but it's five days out of seven and i think that's what you should be celebrating not desperately trying to beat yourself up for those two days where it isn't as great mm. yeah you're right and you've you've i think kindness and compassion somebody once said to me and i i think a lot of this of this person compassion is one of the things that that we struggle with as 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 a as an individuals but compassion to self so being mm. kind to yourself is so hard to do much harder than it is to be kind to somebody else and it's that inner voice, isn't it? The tone of the inner voice that you have sitting on your shoulder going, dude, why did you do that? That was rubbish. Mm. And, and, and trying to recognize that little inner voice and maybe turn it a little bit to just be a little bit nicer. Or even better, to ignore it. Mm. To just say, I'm not going to listen to you. I'm just going to carry on and do what I was going to do. But I think we are infiltrated by this desire mental health comes with it in industry and that industry needs to keep us never quite achieving our goal so whether it's the weight loss industry the weight loss industry needs us to keep failing because there'd be no weight loss if somebody said tomorrow actually we've worked out all you need to do is eat two marshmallows on a tuesday and you'll be the weight you want to be that would be terrible for the weight loss industry so what they need is everybody to sit down on Sunday afternoon and think, oh my gosh, what have I eaten this week? So the guilt drives them forward to sign up for another month's subscription with the weight loss program. But actually, mm. if we were just a bit more compassionate and said, you know what, yeah, that was, that was a bit of a crazy weekend, but I'm back on it Monday, we'd feel a bit better. We would feel a bit better, but I, I, I do think there's also a balance towards owning the fact I really, really, really want to be here. And I want to be here for all sorts of reasons that are genuine and not because I've been told, but I want to be here, whether it's weight, whether it's career success, whether it's, you know, how I measure myself as a mother or, or my mental health, physical health, whatever. I want to be in this particular point and I'm not. What are the stepping stones that I keep falling off? And how am I going to make sure I don't fall off them next time? because of these habitual things that are in my sort of subconscious that keep pushing me off. And I do think kindness and, and, and just easing up on the rigidity is something that isn't natural to me, to myself, but would be very helpful. But I also think there's a point of going, all right, well, you know, the weekend is your sticking point. That is what is preventing you from getting to here. Therefore, what are you going to do about it? And I think there's a place for that as well. I think there is, and I think it's like anything with mental health. It's about analysing or looking at what stops you doing doing that thing. But I think that if we, where people fail is when they when they drop a ball, they tend to say, "That's it. Then I'm just gonna I'm gonna go crazy." I was in a um, I remember once being in a meeting in a in a in a restaurant and listening to two people having a conversation, and they said, "Well." It was it was a breakfast meeting, and they said, "Well, now I've had that cup breakfast. That's my diet out the window for the rest of the day." And I remember thinking, "Well, why? Why is it? 
Why can't you just say, that was a great breakfast, celebrate the pleasure you got from eating it, and then go back to doing what you were doing. But it's that loaded guilt that makes us drop off the curve completely. And we've got to try and find a way of getting rid of that that loaded guilt. And that comes into into mental health in every arena. You've only got to look on social media where parents, you know, claim to do some amazing things with their children. And I and I question whether they really do, but it's about um looking for approval from people, so trying to stick to expected outcomes. Yeah, I think there's an awful, awful lot to be said in that. And one of the sort of on the to be a bit cliche, the journey that I'm on is recognizing when those things are happening. So that person sitting in the restaurant going, oh, it's out the way, out the window for now, recognizing what's going on there and being aware of going, ah, I've just, you know, I've made this sweeping statement. Is it really true? Is that, is that really how it is? I think there's something that we do when we do mental health work with adults, which is about asking ourselves whether what we're thinking is really the truth. So is, is this trap thought or this thought that's buzzing around my head and getting me down? What was I doing just before I had it? So what was, what was, the, what was the activity that set it up? What is the thought? Uh, what's the outcome of that thought? So if the thought is, you know, I'm never going to lose weight, I'm rubbish, I'm this... And then the next question we should ask ourselves is, is that really true? Or am I just being unkind to myself? What's the truth? Well, the truth is, I've just had a sausage. And that's it. And I think it, it's about just going that little bit further down that road. Mm. So not stopping at the being mean to yourself. Just having a look around the corner and looking at what the truth is, is the next step. Yeah. And in order to take those te- steps, you've got to recognize when you're saying to yourself... I'm rubbish, I'll never eat, I'll never lose weight, or I'm a terrible mother, or I'm never going to be good at this job, or any of those things that people do say to themselves. One of the things that I'm quite interested in, and I was talking to somebody, um, a clinical psychologist about it last week, is about the tone of how you speak to yourself, and where that comes from, and what the tone does. Because one, I'm quite sarcastic to myself, it turns out, and sarcasm's actually not that nice. But also sometimes I hear myself saying something quite sarcastic to my husband or my kids. And then I wonder, is their inner voice going to be horribly sarcastic? Is that how they're going to grow up speaking to themselves because it's how I speak to them? And then I get myself in a whole knot about being the worst mother on the face of the planet and blah, 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 blah. Exactly what we've just discussed. I think sometimes as well, sarcasm is a defense, isn't it? So we, we come back with a sarcastic quip or a comment. But it's because that there's a chance we're going to be exposed at that point. So if we, if we come back with a flippant comment, the silly remark, we don't have to just look that bit deeper about the thing that's frightening us. And I say we should practice sometimes just exposing our real feeling, just sometimes saying what we're really thinking and not hiding behind cynicism or sarcasm. It's something we just see a lot in insecure people where they behave cynically and they go, no, oh, I would never want to do that. Oh, well, that's... But actually, I, when I, whenever I see someone being overly cynical, my first thought is actually that they're, they're quite afraid to get involved. They're quite afraid to 
let themselves go and be part of it. And it, it you know, it's like accepting a compliment, isn't it? When we back back a compliment, we do ourselves a disservice twice because one, we don't get to enjoy the compliment, but we make it less likely that we're going to get another one because we reject that person who gave us it and just practicing letting the world in then gets us used to hearing nice comments so that internal dialogue that you're talking about becomes softer, gentler and kinder. Where's the balance between allowing what you really think and and feel to come out rather than batting it down versus knowing when your emotions are in control and it's out of perspective or, or distorted? How do you... How do you internally balance those two things? I think that's one of the, the great $64,000 questions, isn't it? It's always, easier, it's always easier to reflect than it is to respond. What I teach particularly young people that I work with is, is just about how they can take a minute. If things don't feel right, if they feel that they've got an emotion that feels too strong, what can we do to just bring that back to okay again? So we look at the the signs of what we call dysregulated emotions and how we can bring them back. And I think it's about trying to respond when we're in that okay point rather than responding when we're dysregulated, whether that be overly excitable, angry, scared. And it's about actually checking in with yourself throughout the day and saying, how am I feeling right now? Do I feel all right? And if we don't, then it's about trying to do something that brings us back to okay again. And one of the best things we can do that, regulates our emotions is just doing something physical even something as simple as standing on one leg and hopping regulates our emotions much more rapidly than hours of i don't know meditation or mindfulness just being in our body is a really powerful tool yeah i actually think that that's really interesting so i tried to do a meditative walk the other day not that long ago and sort of combining the two was almost more stressful than if I'd just gone for a run because I was desperately trying to walk slower, be mindful, think about my feet. Whereas actually, if I just wasn't forcing any particular thought and just go for a run where I'm unable to think because I'm too out of breath, then I find that much more regulating. I love that idea, dysregulating emotions. I'm going to use that. What you've just described is my, what we've seen grow in, in the sort of mental health industry. In the last 10 years, we can't just say to someone now, go for a walk. It's now, go for a meditative walk. And actually, then what you need to do is, is, is read this book about meditative walking, where actually humans have walked and spent time outside successfully for thousands of years. And it's a little bit like when I talk to teenagers about things they can do that will really help their mental health. And one of them is spending time outside in green spaces we know that has a real impact on mental health that's never the one that excites them because it's too easy it doesn't have a purchase attached to it it doesn't have a it doesn't have a regimented thing you can get right or wrong where actually if you think about some of your best ideas they come when you're not thinking about them they're the solutions when you're in that natural meditative state of just being doing what comes natural and being in what we call a flow or an okay state. Somebody once said to me, somebody I worked with years ago, she said that her and her partner are are different. They go for a walk and his 
objective is to get to point B and her objective ends at point B. So she'll, you know, go over. And that often is, causes a bit of friction between them. And if I think about my life, my objective is to get to point B as quickly and efficiently as possible. And point B ultimately is always death. So I'm not really sure why I'm heading, you know, so fast and efficiently there. So I like what you've just said. And it, and it comes back to what you said earlier about being less regimented and being more in your body and in the moment. I think it's really important. And I went for a walk with my daughter in, um, my eldest daughter in January, and she was all kinds of kerfuffled. And we we're in the middle of lockdown and it was, it was cold and it was horrible. And as we left the house, she was, I didn't want to go. She was sobbing. She was, you know, at a breaking point. And we went for a walk and we talked about nothing particular and we went nowhere particular and we didn't have any particular agenda. By the time we got back, she was her normal self again. And I remember saying to her, can you just take a moment and just reflect on how you felt an hour ago and how you feel now? I know you didn't want to come, but let's just notice the difference because I feel it. I feel better in myself. She was like, yeah, yeah, I do. Obviously, now when I remind her of that, she goes, yeah, but I still don't want to go and walk. But, you know, the, that idea is, is really powerful. But we've lost those natural things out of our lives, haven't we? So we don't naturally need to go for a walk anymore or we don't naturally need to um you know if, if we want food it can be delivered so we don't have to go and hunt for it or, or walk for it so we're losing all those opportunities where we would naturally regulate anyway it's one of the things that i think about home working that actually the commute home from work or the walk back from work is quite good for us because we're separating the two ends of the day where now where a lot of us just walk down the garden, it doesn't have that same cathartic effect. And I was just going to pick on, on something you said earlier about the desire to get to point B all the time, completion being the goal, completion being the goal. There's two things about that. The, for me, I always worry when people are very goal-orientated because they're always setting themselves up to fail. There's a good potential. They're never going to reach that goal. But also what tends to happen when people have very clear goals all the time, they reach this sort of peak where they get near the goal and then they get deflated because they think, oh, well, I'm there. It's not exciting anymore. Where actually it's the desire to get to the goal that's much more pleasurable. So the pleasure's in the walk, not the destination. And it's the same in business or in our personal lives. If we set goals constantly, if we constantly build goals and get there, then we're always going to get that feeling of, okay, what comes next? Oh. If you are naturally, if you're naturally inclined, as I am, to be goal, process, rigid, orientated, and what you've just said is 100% true. As soon as I hit a goal, I move the goalpost because obviously I didn't set it high enough and therefore it's not worth it. And therefore it needs to be higher, harder, faster, longer, whatever it is. And I do that um, intrinsically and I do it subconsciously with everything, literally everything. And it's something I've noticed about myself. But what I don't know is how you change that natural driver, because actually I'm also driven and excited by getting to the goal, which is what you've just said. But how do I, how do I flip that in my head? How do I? I think it's about accepting, about accepting that 
trying to spend some time every day just in today. Because th- there's two things. One, you either you die either never having met a girl because it's always so far off and intangible, or you are just constantly marking your homework. You know, you're just always saying, am I nearly there yet? Am I nearly there yet? So for me, sometimes <laughs> it's about... You I'm, just described my life, Stuart. <laughs> but it is, isn't it? We, we constantly come... That's where that comparison to our friends comes in and our comparison to our peers. It leads on to something else that's really interesting about modern life is how we've become less compassionate in line with how we've become more goal-driven. So we, if we go back to the 80s where we were told we weren't part of a society, we were the individual and it was all about me, 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 you can draw a straight line with how unhappy societies come along with that point because we therefore, if we're goal-driven all the time, we reflect on how other people do with achieving their goals. Somebody, a, a client said to me the other day, and she's a writer, and she said to me, I feel really sad today. And I said, why? And she said, well, one of my peers has just had an award for one of her books. And that made me feel really sad. And I, I feel really good for her, and I feel really pleased for her, but it made me feel really sad about myself. And I thought that is a real reflection on where we are as a goal-driven society, that instead of just feeling that sympathetic happiness for a peer, it, her her success actually she felt reflected on her failure yet the two were totally unlinked yet she thought it was the same thing and we see it in small conversations you know a neighbour gets a new car and instead of saying oh well, that's a lovely car well done we might verbalise that but internally we're thinking what did they do to get that how come they've got that and I haven't a friend gets married before we're married and we think oh well I'm going to be left on the shelf there isn't a, a moment of just saying, well, that's great for you and it has no reflection on me. And I think it comes from that, well, we know it comes from that American belief of striving to hit goals constantly. And if you don't hit your goal, you must be a failure. So we, we have that belief that success comes from hard work and successful people work really hard and wealthy people work really hard and they've got to that goal because they've worked much harder than everybody else but actually when we analyze those people they've really most of the time got there through luck yes they've worked hard but the billionaire actually had some lucky breaks along the way that the person who's today finds himself in bankruptcy court may have worked just as hard but they've just had some unlucky breaks along the way but we we, we build this safety net around ourselves that hard work and goals is our success but actually, sometimes we should just be saying, do you know what? This cup of tea is lovely, and that's great, and I don't need to think about anything else right now. You know, it, it's that funny. I think that ties in with what you were saying earlier, which is when you are having an emotive response to something, just to take a moment and go, what's really going on here? So having the conversation with myself about actually, she's run further than me this year and that makes me a failure. And, oh no, hang on a minute. Let's just think about what this is really about. So it's it's just, again, owning the feeling and having a look internally to see where it's coming from. And the same goes with your goals as well. Asking yourself, why do I need to meet that goal? So if your goal is to have... I had a client recently who said to me, when we first met, my goal is 
to have so many millions in the bank. When I get to this point, I'll feel successful and happy. And it was his whole modus operandi. He was going to get there by hook or by crook. But then I spoke to him two days ago, and he'd, he'd surpassed that figure. He'd gone way beyond it because of cryptocurrencies hitting this high that they're at the moment, and he was going to sell all his coins, and he was going to be at this wealth target he was at. But he wasn't happy. He didn't feel any happier than he spoke when we spoke 12 months ago, because actually it was what he believed having that wealth was going to give him, which was approval from his family, not having to worry about his children. Actually, when we talked about it, and he sort of those problems are still there. So his goal was a false goal. His goal, he may have been better spending that time on building better relationships with his family or looking at approval for other people in other ways. Yet his goal for him up until that point had been this excess wealth creation that he was trying to achieve. If you have a personal goal that you're working towards, and I'm thinking very specifically of one of mine, how do you unpick your reasons for that goal by yourself? Because you're already trapped in your, you, you almost need somebody to ask you the questions to unravel the, the patterns. I think the first question is, what does that goal give me? What would it mean to be at that point? You know, what does it mean to be at the top of that tree, at the top of that ladder? And, you know, that that can be a wonderful thing. It can be great. But you also have to ask yourself, am I there meeting either someone else's judgments of me? Or, am, or could, I, could I be meeting that goal in another way that was less painful, less destructive to my family, perhaps, or less destructive to my own well-being? So it's so interesting, and I'm sort of answering your questions in my head about my own. So I am 37, and I have a financial goal I want to meet by 40. And the reason I have the financial goal that I want to meet by 40 is because I want to travel, and at the moment I can't. I want to travel with the kids. I want to take every summer off, and I want to go and you know, go to Timbuktu and all kinds of crazy places. And I can't do that without meeting the goal. And I want to do it for me because I love traveling. And I really want to do it for the kids because I think having a worldly experience of, of non-Western culture as well as West, different Western cultures, and it is something that's important to me. But it is a really hefty goal, and it's going to require an awful lot from me, which will take away from my children in the next two years. And I don't want to well, sort of delve into suddenly becoming your therapist. <laughs> but the, the question I'd be asking if I was your therapist there was be, so you're meeting the goal so you can spend more time with your children, ultimately, and provide them with rich experiences. But to do that, you're going to spend less time with your children and give them less rich experiences in the meantime? Yeah, I see that. But I am not motivated or don't, I don't really enjoy doing arts and crafts or playing. Like It makes me anxious. I think it probably makes me anxious because 
I'm not very good at it and I don't want to do it. And really, I'd like to be at work if I'm really honest with myself. Do you feel guilty that that's something that isn't giving you control? So when you're at work, you're in control of your destiny. When you're playing, you're just freestyling and that feels like a bad thing. Oh, that is deep and probably quite accurate. (laughs) If I was going to give you one bit of advice, it would be to practice just being in the now. Just practice saying, am I okay at the moment? Will the world end if I stay in this position? There was a great Roman Stoic who said that people who are anxious are a bit like people that are riding an elephant. So they believe that they're in great control all the time. I'm going to do this thing and I'm going to reach my goal. I'm going to get where I need to be on the elephant. But actually they're fooling themselves. The elephant's going where it wants to go and you're just riding it. So you might as well just enjoy the ride. And I think that sometimes when we set goals, we are very much just riding an elephant. It's going to end up where we want it to be without us. That that is a quote. That is... This podcast is called Riding the Elephant. There it is. That is incredible. Stuart, I am so grateful for your time on this podcast. It's been really enjoyable. Thank you very, very much. Thank you for having me. Thank you for listening to today's podcast. Your reviews, shares and followership is incredibly valuable to us. If you'd like to know more about our work through Coffee Carmen Connection and how we can support you, please email us at hello at coffeecarmconnection.org or follow us on social media. Thank you.